0: Chapter Twenty Three of The Double Life of Mr. Alfred Burton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Warren Cotty, Gurney, Illinois. The Double Life of Mr. Alfred Burton by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Chapter Twenty Three Condemned to burton who was in those days an epicure in sensations there was something almost ecstatic in the pleasure of that evening they dined at a little round table in the most desirable corner of the room the professor and edith mr bomford and himself the music of one of the most famous orchestras in europe alternately swelled and died away always with the background of that steady hum of cheerful conversation it was his first experience of a restaurant de luxe he looked about him in amazed wonder he had expected to find himself in a palace of guilt to find the prevailing note of the place an unrestrained and inartistic gorgeousness he found instead that the decorations everywhere were of a spotless white the whole effect one of cultivated and restful harmony the glass and linen on the table were perfect. There was nowhere the slightest evidence of any ostentation. Within a few feet of him, separated only by that little space of tablecloth, in a great bowl of pink roses, sat Edith. Dressed as he had never seen her before, a most becoming flush upon her cheeks, a new and softer brilliancy in her eyes, which always seemed to be seeking his they drank champagne to the tastes and effects of which he was as yet unaccustomed burton felt its inspiring effect even though he himself drank little the conversation was always interesting the professor talked of assyria and there was no man who had had stranger experiences he talked with the eloquence and fervor of a man who speaks of things which have become a passion with him so vividly, indeed, that more than once he seemed to carry his listeners with him back through the ages, back into actual touch with the life of thousands of years ago, which he described with such full and picturesque detail. Not at any time during the dinner was the slightest allusion made to that last heated interview which had taken place between the three men. Even when they sat out in the palm court afterwards, and smoked and listened to the band and watched the people mr bomford only distantly alluded to it i want to ask you mr burton he said what you think of your surroundings of the restaurant and your neighbors on every side the restaurant is very beautiful burton admitted the whole place seems delightful one can only judge of the people by their appearance that at any rate is in their favor Mr. Bomford nodded approvingly. I will admit, Mr. Burton, he continued, leaning a little towards him, that one of my objects in asking you to dine this evening, apart from the pleasure of your company, was to prove to you the truth of one of my remarks the other evening, that the expenditure of money need not necessarily be associated with vulgarity. This is a restaurant which only the rich could afford to patronize save occasionally. Yet you see for yourself that the prominent note here is a subdued and artistic tastefulness. The days of loud colors and the flamboyant life are past. Money today is the handmaiden to culture. Exceedingly pleased with his speech, Mr. Bomford leaned back in his chair and lighted a half-crown cigar. Presently, without any visible cooperation on their part, a little scheme was carried into effect by the professor and mr bomford the latter rose and crossed to the other side of the room to speak to some friends a few moments later he beckoned to the professor edith and burton were alone she drew a deep sigh of relief and turned towards him as though expecting him to say something burton however was silent he had never seen her quite like this she wore a plain white satin dress and a string of pearls about her neck which she saw for the first time entirely exposed the excitement of the evening had brought a delicate flush to her face the blue in her eyes was more wonderful here even than out in the sunlight amid many toilets of more complicated design the exquisite and entire simplicity of her gown and hair and ornaments was delightful you are quiet this evening she whispered i wish i could know what you are thinking of all the time there is nothing in my thoughts or in my heart he answered which i would not tell you if i could evenings like this other evenings which you and i have spent together in still more beautiful places have been like little perfect epochs in an imperfect life yet all the time one is haunted i am haunted here tonight. even as i sit by your side i move through life a condemned man i know it for i have proved it before very long the man whom you know who sits by your side at this moment who is your slave dear must pass you can never altogether change she murmured his hands clasped the small silver box in his pocket in a few months, he said hoarsely. Unless we can find the missing plant, I shall be again the common little clerk who came and peered over your hedge at you in the summer. She smiled at him a little incredulously. Even when you tell me so, she insisted, I cannot believe it. He drew his chair closer to hers. He looked around him nervously. The horror was in his eyes. Since I saw you last, he continued i have been very nearly like it i couldn't travel alone i bought silly comic papers i played nap with young men who talked of nothing but their shop and their young ladies i have been to a public house drunk beer and shaken hands with the barmaid i was even disappointed when one of them a creature with false hair a loud rasping voice and painted lips was not there just in time i took one of my beans and became myself again but edith i have only two more when they are gone there is an end of me that is why i sit here by your side at this moment and feel myself a condemned man i think that when i feel the change coming i shall throw myself over into the river i could not bear the other life again absurd she declared if i believed he went on that i could carry with me across that curious boundary enough of decency enough of my present feelings to keep us wholly apart i would be happier it is one of the terrors of my worst moments when i think that in the months or years to come i may again be tempted no not i but alfred burton of garden green may be tempted to look once more across the hedge for you she smiled reassuringly at him you do not terrify me in the least i shall ask you in to tea he groaned my speech will be cockney and my manners a little forward he said in a tone of misery if i see your piano i shall want to vamp i think she murmured that for the sake of the alfred burton who is sitting by my side to-night i shall still be kind to you perhaps you will not need my sympathy though perhaps you will adapt yourself wholly to your new life when the time comes he shook his head there are cells in one's memory he muttered i don't understand i don't know how they get there but don't you remember that time last summer when i was picnicking with my common friends we were drinking beer out of a stone jug we were singing vulgar songs we were reveling in the silly perilities of a bank holiday out of doors and i saw your face and something came to me i saw for a moment over the wall dear i am very sure that if i go back there will be times when i shall see over the wall and my heart will ache and the whole taste of life will be like dust between my teeth she leaned towards him it is your fault if i say this she whispered it is you yourself who have prepared the way Why not make sure of riches? The world can give so much to the rich. You can buy education, manners, taste. Anything surely would be better than taking up the life of an auctioneer's clerk once more. With riches, you can at least get away from the most oppressive forms of vulgarity. I wish I could believe it, he replied. The poor man is, as a rule, natural. The rich man has the taste of other things on his palate. He has looked over the wrong wall. He apes what he sees in the wrong garden. Not always, she pleaded. Don't you believe that something will remain in these splendid months of yours? Some willpower, some faint impulse towards the choicer ways of life? Oh, it really must be so, she went on more confidently. I am sure of it. I think of you as you are now. How carefully you control even your emotions. How sensitive you always are in your speech and i know that you could never revert entirely to those other days you may slip back and slip back a long way but there would always be something to keep you from the depths her eyes were glowing her fingers deliberately touched his for a moment it is wonderful to hope that it may be so he sighed even as i sit here and remember that awful picnic party i remember too that something drew me a little away from the others to gaze into your garden and at you there was something even then which kept me from being with them while i looked and i know that at that moment at the moment i looked up and met your eyes i know that there was no vulgar thought in my heart dear she said with every word you make me the more inclined to persist i honestly believe that father and mr bomford are right it is your duty you owe it to yourself to accept their offer he sat for several minutes without speech if i could only make you understand he went on at last somehow i feel as though it would be making almost a vulgar use of something which is to me divine these strange little things which mr bomford would have me barter for money brought me out of the unclean world and showed me how beautiful life might be showed me indeed what beauty really is there is no religion has ever brought such joy to the heart of a man nor any love nor any of the great passions of the world have opened such gates as they have done for me you can't imagine what the hideous life is like the life of vulgar days of ugly surroundings the dull and ceaseless trudge side by side with the multitude across the sterile plain without the power to raise one's eyes without the power to stretch out one's arms and feel the throb of freedom in one's pulses if i die tomorrow, i shall at least have lived for a little time thanks to these can you wonder that i think of them with reverence yet you ask me to make use of one of them to help launch upon the world a patent food something built upon the credulity of fools something whose praises must be sung in blatant advertisements desecrating the pages of magazines gaping from the hoardings thrust inside the chinks of human simplicity by the art of the advertising agent edith it is a hard thing this do try and realize how hard it is if there be anything in the world divine if there be anything sacred at all anything to lift one from the common way it is what you ask me to sacrifice you are such a sentimentalist dear she whispered you need have no share in the commercial part of this the money can simply keep you while you write or help you to travel it will lead that other fellow he groaned into no end of mischief the professor and mr bomford returned They talked for a little time together, and then the party broke up. As they waited for Edith to get her cloak, Burton spoke the few words which they were both longing to hear. Mr. Bomford, he announced, and Professor, I should like to see you tomorrow. I am going to think over this matter tonight once more. It is very possible that I may see my way clear to do as you ask. Mr. Burton, sir, the Professor said, grasping his hand. I congratulate you. I felt sure that your common sense would assert itself. Let me assure you of one thing, too. Indirectly, you will be the cause of marvelous discoveries, enlightening discoveries, being made as to the source of some of that older civilization which still bewilders the student of prehistoric days. Mr. Bomford had less to say, but he was quite as emphatic. If you only think hard enough, Mr. Burton, he declared you can't make a mistake he saw them into the motor edith in a cloak of lace which made her seem like some dainty fairy-like creature as she stepped from the pavement into a corner of the landolet. afterwards he walked with uplifted heart through the streets and back to his rooms he let himself in with a mechanical turn of the key on the threshold he stood still in sudden amazement the lights were all turned on The room was in rank disorder. Simmering upon the hearth were the remains of his novel. Upset upon the table, several pots of paint. Three chairs were lashed together with a piece of rope. On a fourth sat Alfred, cracking a homemade whip. His hands were covered with coal dust, traces of which were smeared upon his cheeks. There were spots of ink all down his clothes. His eyes seemed somehow to have crept closer together there were distinct signs of a tendency on the part of his hair to curl over a certain spot on his forehead he looked at his father like a whipped hound but he never said a word what on earth have you been doing alfred burton faltered the boy dropped his whip and put his finger in his mouth he was obviously on the point of howling you left me here all alone he said in an aggrieved tone there was no one to play with nothing to do i want to go back to mother i want ned and dick to play with don't want to stop here any longer he began to howl burton looked around once more at the scene of his desolation he moved to the fireplace and gazed down at the charred remnants of his novel the boy continued to howl End of chapter twenty three recording by warren coddy gurney Illinois.